Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back January Writing Challenge edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now this month we are live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work they want to write and how they might overcome those obstacles. Today we get to hear from three amazing writers and friends, Erica Forensic, Mark Cecil, and Whitney Scher. Good morning, you three. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. Erica Forensic is the author of the critically acclaimed best-selling novels, The River Night, Into the Jungle, and Girl in Ice. They're all really fun adventure type novels, so I absolutely recommend them. Mark Cecil is the author of the novel Bunyan and Henry or The Thoughtful Destiny. And so that's a new novel upcoming that you can track down and catch a lot of Mark's uh, events, I'm assuming in Boston and elsewhere. So you can find him live hopefully as well. He's also the host of the Thought Pro Broke podcast, which I recommend. And he has taught writing at Grub Street in Boston. And then Whitney Share, Whitney, can I out you that you actually have... <laughs> Whitney tested positive for COVID yesterday, but she is still with us. She is alive and well. And so if she if she suddenly like falls off the chair, we'll know what's happened. And we'll try to continue on and, and someone will call 911 for Whitney. But Whitney Share is the author of the international best-selling and award-winning novel, The Art uh, the, the Art of Life. That's not the name of the novel. It's called The Age of Life, as well as short fiction and essays in numerous publications. She is also the co-founder of the Ar Arlington Author Salon in Arlington, Mass., which is my current hometown. So we love that she's doing that and it's an amazing uh, reading series. Okay. Everyone, uh, remember that we do have started a Facebook page. We've now hit our 100-person mark, and we're uh, continuing to grow. I'm going to try to interface with that page even more after this challenge is done. Um, and so I will put the link for that Facebook page in the podcast notes. Uh, you can also participate in the chat. Uh, you can echo any of the issues that you have that the uh, listeners are sharing with us, and you can also share your own uh fixes for the problems that they're having. Okay, so the first one we're gonna hear from is she, and she sent this in an audio recording. I've written some short stories and flash fiction in my writing practice while working on my first novel. I want to publish some of the stories I wrote, but struggle to navigate the field of literary magazines. Do you have any advice on finding the right places and managing the submission process? I tried using ChillSub, an online submission system, but I find that sheer volume of publications there intimidating. Sifting through them to find the appropriate ones for each of my stories seems to take forever. Also, I heard a lot of it comes down to taste, but I haven't read that many literary magazines. What I've been reading are novels and short stories in book forms. Now, she... Uh... I feel you on this. And the uh, recommendation was, you know, oh, make sure that you're reading literary uh, magazines so that you know who you are submitting to. And of course, literary magazines run on a shoestring budget. Um, they don't get a whole lot of, um, they just don't have a lot of money. They're, they're barely running. And, and, and they're also really fighting for readers. Um, I do think if you regularly publish in literary magazines, or if you want to publish in literary magazines, you do need to be reading them. However, there are a lot of them. And to be able to read and or you know buy copies of every literary magazine out there um, that could even be interested in your work, even just in the literary vein, but there's also lots of magazines that 
crime, horror, all sorts of different, you know, genres of magazines. Um, you're, you're just not, you know, you can find them sometimes at libraries to check them out, but you but even that is just really hard to catch up and, and keep up. Uh, lots of them have editors, but those editors also change over quite a lot. Um, and those editors will oftentimes have taste, uh, specific taste, just like you were talking about, She. And then, you know, there are a few magazines, you know, Plowshares um, uh, is one that has a, has a different editor per each uh, magazine uh, that they put out. So... It is very, very hard to keep up and, and know who to submit to. So what I would do is really look at those short story collections that you love, because normally at the very front of the copyright page, they will name which literary magazine those short stories were published in. And then you can go and check out that literary magazine and try to find out more information about them. There are also, I always went to... Um, Best American Short Story. Um, there's also uh, Best Crime, Best Horror, Best Travel Writing. There's tons of, you know, the old Henry stories. There, there are tons of collected uh, short stories, um, publications out there that come out once a year that do the best of the best. And they will always tell you where they originally published in. And so if you're drawn to a particular voice in a particular story, then you can find which literary magazine they were published in, and then you can track that literary magazine down. Um, I also highly recommend um, the writer's market, the short story and novel uh, writer's market. Um, it's, it's in a digitalized version now, so you could they, they update it quite a lot. Um, be careful, however, um, so it'll give like a short information of, of the sort of fiction that they're looking for or nonfiction or, or poetry or whatever you're writing. Um, uh, how many people, how many subscribers they have, um, usually a little quote from the editor about what they're looking for and what they want. What you want to be careful of is though that a lot of literary magazine editors will actually name the wrong editor in the writer's magazine. Um, or in the Writer's Digest uh, collection because they want to catch people that are only going to Writer's Digest and that's the only way that they know the magazine. So you always want to second check the magazine, go to their website um, and, you know, and read some of the, the pieces. Lots of literary magazines have websites now that you can look to and read. Um, and if you do certainly get published in a literary magazine, then I would hope that you would support them because that's the only way that they'll be able to continue. Um, and when I was submitting, I would create, I'm, I'm a list person. So I'd create these whole tiers of, you know, well, how many times were they in Best American Short Story? Those would be the top tier, but I'd always start in the second or third tier as a beginning writer um, and just kind of work my way up. Or if friends had, had uh, works published in certain literary magazines, or if I had friends who were actually editors or, or readers at certain literary magazines, I would throw something their way. Um, but I do, I do think it's very, very difficult to actually be, you know, purchasing all those magazines, reading through all those magazines, but looking at the collections to see what the taste of the magazine is, um, is really, really important. And then, and then please do support the literary magazines um, from there on if as much as you can. Um, and you God buy books too. You know, the only people think writers are rich and just, you know, we aren't really that much. So I'm going to toss this over to Whitney. What's your, what's been your approach? That was my fast and dirty approach to doing this sort of thing. What do you think? Um, yeah, my, my approach is similar. Um, but first I, I want to say that, uh, the, the woman who called in like, good on you for writing your novel and also 
writing short stories at the same time because I my advice is a little out of date because I seem to be a person who can only do one thing at, at a time. And so I when I started writing novels, I was like, I have no brain space for short stories. Um, but uh, but I have, you know, I have written short stories and, and submitted them. And um, I mean, I was going to say this similar thing to to Michelle about Best American is a really good place to look at, you know, see see what stories are being published where that match up with your taste. I think Poets and Writers is a good resource as well. They have that big classified section. Um, and that'll that will list especially a lot of contests that are coming up. And I I am not sure if this is true, but I was told multiple times, and it sort of seems maybe true that submitting to contests is actually an easier way sometimes to get your work published because because it has a fee. So if you're willing to pay the fee, you might want to consider um, submitting to a couple contests just because it's going to be a smaller pool of people who are are doing that. So um, beyond that, the only things that I'll say are um, uh, when I was submitting a lot, I used to have submission parties. Uh, it would get together with like other writer yeah. friends and we'd each have our list of places that we wanted to send our work to. And we would just sit there. And and I mean, this this was like, we were literally mailing them. So I suppose now you just bring your laptop and do it, but we used to like stick them in envelopes and do it. But either way, just getting together and kind of giving yourself a reason to actually get your work out there. Because I, um, I think it's really helpful to always have work out. So like, if you do get a rejection, you're like, whatever, I've got 12 other submissions out there right now. And like, who cares about that literary magazine? Um, and, uh, and then let's see. Oh, and then the only other thing would be to just, um, in addition to those, those tiered lists that Michelle says she makes, I always put the submission deadlines and, um, date ranges on my, on my Google calendar so that I would just know like, oh, the window is May 15th to September 15th or whatever. Cause I feel like there's always those, those weird windows um, of time that are different for every single magazine. And check the website again, because those always change as well. Yeah. Cause they always yeah. get flooded. They get flooded with submissions. So, so the sad thing is they don't get enough readers and yet they're flooded with people that want to be published in them. Um, also some of them take simultaneous submissions and some of them do not. Um, so that's something to look for as well. Um, if simultaneous submissions means that if, if they don't take a simultaneous submission that you'd have to wait to hear back from them before you submit the same piece to another magazine. Um, I have a question in the chat. How do agents and editors look at those contests? Um, I think looking, I think submitting to those contests, just like what he says is absolutely something you want to do if you can afford it. Um, you do have to pay for it. And I always worked out a percentage, like, well, if the prize is this much and the submission cost was this much, then I think it's okay. <laughs> this is how weird I am. Um, but I do think agents editors do look at those contests um, because it kind of helps them filter down the best of the best in their mind. And, and they will contact you if you win a contest and and you'll they'll ask you if you have something else. Um, so they'll usually ask you if you have a novel. So, so it's always something good to look at. Mark, what do you think? Yeah, um, I don't have a ton of experience like Whitney. I mean, I have been published in one uh, journal of this kind before, but that's just because I was friends with the person who ran the literary journal and they said, do you have anything? And I did. Um, my general impression of the literary magazine world is that it is just completely the Wild West. I mean, just the the, the world of art, it's already the wild west just the world of trying to get your novel published is the wild west and this is like the wild west of the wild west it just <laughs> seems um it seems very complicated it's enormous 
Um, and it's it's very hard to figure out um, what are the quality publications from the ones that are not. Um, I think I I get the impression as an outsider and somebody who doesn't have an MFA that these are very MFA driven. They're sort of kind of for MFA people, by MFA people. Um, they're often run by MFA people. And um, so if you're kind of on the outside and don't have an MFA and you don't have any link to the magazine through a program, it just might be a little bit um, harder for you. Um, I guess, but my big thought on this is this. Um, I would just ask the, the the woman who asked the question, just like, where where does your real passion lie? And are you viewing this as a means to an end? And if it's a, it's a question like you, I mean, the, 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 I think the key hint in the question was how she said, you know, that she really just reads novels and reads short stories. And this is not an area that she's very familiar with. And I think that's a big clue. Because it, what it tells me is that you really do want to write a book and you want to be published in book form and that this would just be kind of like a stepping stone. And so the, the, there's nothing wrong with stepping stones in one's career. But the point I want to make is this. There's only so much rejection that a human being can face. And and it, like just imagine that like you have a tank of like like rejection, like or like kind of like you have like a tank of juice. And if it, and every time you get a rejection, like a little drop comes out of that tank, right? And like the amount of time that you will spend trying to figure out where and how to submit your short stories and your flash fiction, and the um, the sheer volume of rejection that you will get, some of it completely meritless. Like it's like, oh, we don't take that kind of story here. Oh, or we shut down last month. Or oh, you're not whatever it is, right? It's just I would say if your true passion is to publish a novel save your tank for that, because that is such a hard and long road. Um, and I don't want you to get burnt out and feel like bad about your writing because you were just going after something that was just a means to an end anyway. Now, the final point I'll make is that while I don't have a ton of experience, um, I had a great conversation with the wonderful YA writer named Joe Moldover um, yesterday. He wrote a great book called um, Every Moment After. Um, and he has had a lot of success uh, publishing short stories. And I just asked him about what his approach is. And so he said, first of all, um, he loves writing short stories and flash fiction because it helps him develop voice um, and it helps him figure out if he's going to actually follow through and write a novel. His mind is always on the novel, but he likes to kind of use short story and flash fiction as like an experimental kind of laboratory. Um, and then what happens is he really polishes those and he gets to love them and he loves them enough that he wants to see them out there. So he tries to get them published. And indeed, he has seen a few published. He said that the um, best site to use is a site called Duotrope, duotrope.com. Um, that's a site that lists all the places and it tells you which ones are open to submissions. It tells you even, um, you know, reject, rejection and acceptance rates. Um, so there's a ton of information on duotrope.com. Uh, and that's what the site that he swears by. Um, and then as far as like, you know, he had just had an interesting thought about how important it is to publish um, short fiction for your novel career. Like how important a stepping stone is it? And interestingly, he said, it's not that great of a stepping stone. He said, this is just take it from just one guy who's had success, both publishing short stories and novels. He said his agent constantly tells him that it is not um, totally relevant um, you know, the fact that you've published that he's published short stories, he's just basically a novel is an entirely different beast. The analogy he used was, it's like trying out it's like going you want to play football in the NFL. And then you tell them, hey, I'm a limp, I'm an Olympic level javelin thrower. And they'll be like, that's interesting that you're like good at that other sport, but it's just not really relevant to this sport. 
Um, and as Michelle said earlier, often the agent is just saying like, hey, thanks for these great short story creds. Um, do you have a novel? Um, so I think that's, um, yeah, that's what I have to say. Yeah, thank you. Erica. So I was actually gonna say a lot of what Mark said. Um, I echo all of it. I'm so happy you guys are so informed. Um, I don't have much to say about this. Um, I was trying this sort of thing literally last century and I'm, I'm, and things have changed, but the more I listen to you guys, the more it sounds like they kind of haven't, especially since it does sound like it's the wild, wild west of the wild, wild west, which is the way it was. I was keeping cartons of files and notes and, and, um, and that whole thing. I think that, um, and over the years and I've become published and as a novelist and heard from my agent all the time, great, you have a blog, great, you're on this, great, you're on that, great, you are on the mob, whatever it was, it's all about the book. It's all about the book. So again, I don't know what the caller is really wanting to focus on. I think um, as a much younger person, I had a lot more energy and I could uh, do a lot of things. Um, so, so, but now I have to focus on writing novels. I also discovered I was really bad at writing short stories and just like, okay, I'm bad at it, you know? And so that was, that was a lesson. I think that writing short stories and writing novels are just, it's just such a different discipline. Um, yes. I was right? just saying, Erica, I think that's the, I think what's important in what you're saying is that, and what we're all kind of saying is that we've continued on as, um, writers of novels and have kind of left that behind or even never even ventured into that world. And you can, um, be a novelist and not really step into that world at all. You don't, you don't have to do those things if you really want to focus on novels. Um, yes. And I just, think if an agent, I'm sorry, if an agent, a book comes across an agent's desk that blows his or her mind, you're not going to care about if you have three yeah, legs yeah. and you live in whatever. I mean, you know, it's the book always. So it's the book. It's the book. And so the role of like mentioning that you have short story publications in your query letter, it basically, it tells the agent or the college intern that's looking at your query letter that this person can actually write a sentence that other people are willing to publish. And that's basically yeah, all it tells them. Hopefully your query letter will also tell them that as well. But <laughs> there is something there that will help you a little bit. But beyond that, it might not do a, a, a lot for you. Um, however, there are also people that really just love writing short stories. Um, Absolutely. I have a, my friend Linda she gets so tired of going through the gamut and the, the tremendously long process of publishing a book. She's working a memoir right now. Um, and she's like, I just want to finish something short and get, try to get it out there. And then there's there's a lot of satisfaction in that. So that that can also be you're, you're, be, you're also beginning to kind of play the game of submission. And yes, there's only so much rejection that that you can take, but kind of getting used to that. I love these writers that paper their walls with rejection letters. They're like, grabbing hold of it and they're like fuck yeah I've been rejected yeah I'm one of one of the crowd so I, I do think that's part of it and I think that's a good thing um what's also interesting and I hope people have noticed this Kelly Link is just coming out with her first novel I think it's the spring I'm like oh so now I'm like yeah she finally has a novel because I'm such a weird novel crazy person but but 
if you are it's into like, short story, it's, yeah. it's like 400 pages long, it's, which I think That's is so funny. <laughs> That's great. Okay, let's move on to the next. So this is a totally different question. Um, but it's this is for short story writers, novelists, uh, essayists, uh, memoirists, everybody. Okay. Um, so this writer says, good, good early morning, Michelle, authors and writers. Although I love reading it, I need help with using subtext. I understand the double meaning, but writing it is much more challenging. Please help me. Now, this is like a, you know, a basic question that I think a lot of writers don't let themselves ask, but it's it's a, a question that I think they need to ask because I see this all the time. Um, we are supposed to understand subtext. Um, and this writer does say, she says, I can see what subtext is. I can, I read it in books, but I, for some reason, I can't quite do it myself in my own writing, uh, which is really important to think and talk about. Whitney, what was your reaction to this question? So first off, I think this is such a fabulous question. I was like, yes, because I, it, to me, it's like, this kind of gets at the heart of what makes fiction work, frankly. And it feels like, I don't know, it feels very sort of like amorphous. Like it feels like, how do you, like, how do you talk about something that really is like something that's not on the page, right? Because that's really what it is. It's like, subtext is like the stuff that's ha happening under what's happening on the page, or at least that's how I think of it. And I think that like, I feel like there were all these books that I read in high school that I hated. And looking back, I'm like, oh, it's because I totally didn't understand the subtext of what was going on. You know, I just was like, this is just a story about like a woman in a hoop skirt. You know, what's the deal? Um, you know, And then you read it later and you're like, oh my God, like under the surface, you know, she's like full of grief and she's, you know, and like, and like Gatsby is like a bootlegger, you know, like th things like that, that you just, you just maybe don't totally get. So, um, so I think it's, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's, it's, um, it's hard to pin down and it's hard to tell, like, tell someone sort of how to do it. Um, I, when I think about subtext in my writing, what I think about is, so, so when I'm writing a, a scene or, 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 or doing an outline or something, the first thing I do is I think of like, okay, what's the plot? Like, what's the story of the book, right? Like, what's like literally happening? And then I think about sort of what's the emotional journey that the character is going on, right? So it's sort of like these parallel tracks in the in the novel that that are, you know, happening, happening concurrently. And so then if you think about it, subtext in a scene, I think that like, the text is sort of like what's happening, like the plot. And then for me, the subtext is kind of like the way that you get that like emotional journey, you get sort of the themes, you get kind of the underlying like meaning and message um, through to the reader. So that's that's how I have always thought about it. Um, and then I guess the question is like, okay, cool. Like, how do you do that? <laughs> um, because uh, I, I think it's hard, but, but um, I mean, I think there's a bunch of ways I don't, you know, I, I want to hear what other people have to say, so I won't go on and on and on here. But I think a lot of it for me, like interesting ways to play with subtext can be like, you can have characters like having a conversation, um, but then you're using body language, you're using sort of like this, the, the literal staging of like where the characters are as as sort of at odds with what they're saying, perhaps, so that it's you're like, oh, these words that they're saying are not actually what they're what they're what they mean. It's not the full meaning of what's going on. Um, so there's that. There's 
to- there's tone, there's a character's tone, um, which I think you have to do with a light touch in a novel. Like it's like easy in a movie because you have, uh, you can actually see people, you can, you can hear people, but, and you don't want to have like, you know, in your novel, you don't have somebody be like, he said disrespectfully, like you don't want to use all these adverbs or whatever, but you do. I think there are these sort of inflections and tones that you can give to a sentence that may, that make readers aware that what somebody is saying is not really, uh, is not really the whole, the whole story. Um, I'll stop there for now so that other people can, can weigh in. <laughs> yes. Mark, Mark's told me earlier, he came up with a exercise for this. Yes, I totally have an exercise. <laughs> I love exercises. Um, all right, I'll save that for the end, but um, I, I also agree this is like such an interesting and difficult thing um, to talk about. Um, and it's sort of like where the magic happens. I mean, I once heard somebody say that civilization is the art of saying what you don't mean. And um, I think that there is uh, there's some real truth in that. There's just always uh, what you want with subtext is a kind of tension between like the the overt want and the overt goal and like what is actually said and done. Um, and uh, I always think about this. It's the easiest, I think, to think about this as kind of like if you're a director and you've got some actors, which in many ways you are as a writer with some characters in your story. It's like, I think, you know, I heard somebody maybe even say on this show earlier this month, Michelle, that like um, a character always needs something to hide. And you just kind of, you always need to give um, a character um, something that they're trying to get, but they can't quite come out straight and say it. Um, there's a great story kind of guru figure named Robert McKee, who I know Erica is a big fan of. Uh, Erica Forensic and I have actually been together, coincidentally, um, to some of his lectures. Um, but he says there's four layers of um, desire and want in any human being. And I think this is really, really helpful in this conversation. So the first is public. So this is what everybody knows that you say that you want. Then there's private, which is like what you will only discuss with your friends in private, but you won't share in public. Then there's internal, which is what you only think to yourself, but you won't even tell anybody about. And then there's subconscious, which is the drive that you don't even know that you have, but which is actually determining your, your behavior. So if you think of those four layers, the subtext is always the one beneath the, the one above, right? I mean, you can like, you know, you can have a public kind of course of action, which is determined by any of the three beneath it, a subconscious drive, an internal drive, a private drive, and so on. But just think of those four and then think of like, how can I have a, a you know, a private interaction between a man and his wife, say, driven by some kind of hidden subconscious desire or an internal motivation and so on. Um, I think there's... Um, because I love to analytically break things up. I think there's three kinds of places that subtext can appear. They can appear in dialogue, they can appear in action, and they can appear at the level of the work of art itself. And just really quickly, like, you know, subtext and dialogue, like the opposite of subtext is um, saying uh, like on the nose dialogue, just like saying the quiet part loud, that's being on the nose. You wanna, subtext is saying the quiet part quiet. Like a man doesn't say to a woman, I want to have sex with you right now, right? I mean, what is he going to say what is he going to say beneath that that sort of gets him what he wants? And a woman doesn't say, like, I think your new boyfriend is terrible for you. How is she going to express that to her friend without actually coming out with it? And like a diplomat wouldn't say, hi, I'm actually here to figure out your nuclear capabilities. Like he's, there's going to be a different course of dialogue that they take to get that. And then subtext in action. Um, I think of like this famous Taylor Swift line from one of her songs. Did you hear my covert narcissism? I disguise as altruism. I mean, that's a great example of her calling out her own um, poorly hidden subtext. You know, 
action, you see a presidential candidate praying in a church. Is he really in that church because he believes the meek will inherit the earth or is he there because he wants to consolidate earthly power? Um, you see a woman on Instagram at a trip to a, some kind of yoga guru in India. Is she really there because she's seeking internal peace or is she there to kind of bolster her personal capitalistic lifestyle brand? Um, so all of these things that people do but don't quite mean. And finally, and then I'll stop after this, is like thematic subtext at the level of the work of art. And this is when a work of art itself is about something other than what it purports to be. And like, so say to take three films, the film Get Out um, appears to be a horror movie um, on its surface, but it's really about the ongoing exploitation of black people by white people. The series Squid Game appears to be a game show but or whatever it is, but it's actually about the kind of merciless capitalist entertainment industry. And then there's a great movie from the 1980s called The Thing, which is the conceit of this movie is that there's these people stranded in this Antarctic um, uh, station. And this there's this alien monster that like can turn a, that can imitate another human being. So like it looks like I'm talking to Michelle Hoover, but I'm actually talking to The Thing and The Thing is going to kill me. And um, it's this whole idea of paranoia and mistrust, but it's really about the Cold War and about a kind of red scare and about how Americans didn't know if there's spies around them spying for the Soviet Union and that. But it became this horror movie. So anyway, those are the kind of three ways that things can purport to be something, but are really there's something else going on under the hood. And I will stop there for now. That's wonderful. I love I love thinking about this in terms of desire, because <clears throat> You have um, the desire that's running the 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 short story, the concrete desire, or uh, the external desire that's running the short story or the novel, if that's how you're choosing to write it. Uh, and then you have this mix of emotional abstract desires underneath. So let's say Sally wants to marry Fred. Um, underneath all of that, Sally wants to get away from her parents. She wants autonomy. She wants freedom. She wants to feel like a grown up. Um, she wants to feel like a woman. She she wants to have money. She wants all this this kind of mix of why she's doing that. And all of that is going to enter every single scene that your character enters. So that she can't, so in the same, like you said, a guy cannot say, I want to have sex with you. Because even though that might be his concrete desire on top, his other desires are also taking place. I don't want to look like an asshole. I don't want to be an asshole. I don't want to scare her away. And it's also going to depend on who else is in the room. I want to be a nice guy. Um, I want to make sure this goes well. I want her to think well of me. So all of these other things are going to alter how he's able to say that and, and whether he's able to say that. And think about, we do this all the time. We change what we are going to say to people and, um, we uh, we subvert it. We don't say it at all. Um, this also includes actions. So it's always this mix of desire that's determining what's actually on the page versus what is implied underneath. Now, what's implied underneath is that guy once hopes he that she knows that he is telling her, "I want to have sex with you." <laughs> <laughs> but he wants to be able to say, you have really nice hair. Um, so he's hoping that she's able to read the subtext as well. And, you know, we're actually very good at subtext. We exist on it. This is how we live our lives. This is how we function in the day to day. Um, this is how we understand the people around us. We only see it from outside. So we're actually really quite good at understanding subtext. But again, it's about how then do you get on the page? Erica, how do you go about it? 
Wow, you guys are a tough acts to follow. Um, I'm. Uh, so I think we wake up in the morning and it's all about subtext. Subtext comes from a di very deep well and that is self-preservation. And that is done on a conscious level, subcon all the levels that Mark talked about. Um, it's uh, And the subtext, it's, it's uh, a big part of the joy that readers feel when they read because it absolutely involves them. And it makes their makes them work and makes them engage with what you're writing. I think, you know, like Mark said, something without without subtext is like, you know, I mean, one exercise obviously to do would be to take something that is um, that that you admire uh, a paragraph or something that has great subtext, take it out, write it without the subtext, um, analyze a movie, uh, a scene of a movie that said, play it over and over and ask yourself every single beat of dialogue. What are they saying versus what are they really saying? How does character A react to character B with everything that character, all the baggage that character A brings to character B and, and just the enormity of what happens between people. That's our job as a writer to, to take apart those assaults. Don't rush over these small moments, you know. I do think that um, if you're feeling you're like you're not having enough of this subtext, maybe look at your story again. Is there enough conflict? I mean, does care, you know, does someone want something and something stand in the way of it? Uh, you know, who are your characters? What do they want? How are they trying to get it? What stops them over and over and over? Writ large in the grand scheme of your novel, and 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 in in every scene and in every interaction, if you can possibly, you know, pull that off. Um. Yeah, what's at stake? Love, truth, pride. What are the characters fighting for in the conversation? And the characters will take greater and greater risks as the scene goes on. Um. Uh, I think that's pretty much it in terms of what I can think of to add to this incredible. Yeah, we put Eric on the hardest treasure trove here of, of information. Um, I want to add one, the morning. Hello. <laughs> I want to add one more thing yeah. in that. And I think Whitney spoke to this a little bit as well. Sometimes when we are trying too much to control the meaning of a scene or what a reader will take from a scene is when we ignore the importance of subtext and when we make the mistake of the importance of subtext because we're actually trying, we are actually writing what should be instead in the subtext. And I'm gonna read um, from the great uh, Flannery O'Connor on this. She's got an essay called The Nature and Aim of Fiction. Now Flannery O'Connor was a pretty salty person. Um, and I think she did things in her life that pissed people off, but she was also lived a very short life and much of it in pain. So I like to forgive her for that. Plus she's a great writer. Okay, so she says in this, the beginning of human knowledge is through the senses and the fiction writer begins where human perception begins. He appeals through the senses and you cannot appeal through the senses with abstractions. Now, normally when you're not writing with enough subtext, it's because you've written the abstractions on the page instead of allowing them to sit beneath the concrete or beneath perceptions and beneath the scene. Um, it's a good deal easier for most people to state an abstract idea than to describe and thus recreate some object that they can actually see. But the world of the fiction writer is full of matter, 
And this is what the beginning fiction writers are very loath to create. They are concerned primarily with unfleshed ideas and emotions. They're apt to be reformers and they want to write because they are possessed not by a story, but by the bare bones of some abstract notion. They are conscious of problems, not of people, of questions and issues, not of texture of existence, of case histories and everything that has a sociological smack instead of with all those concrete details of life that make actual the mystery of our position on earth. Now, this is also from a woman who had things that she wanted to say in her fiction and who said them very strongly in her fiction, but she did it always through scene and through uh, the concrete. She continued on, and this is what I love. One of the most common and saddest spectacles is that of a person of really fine sensibility and acute psychological perception trying to write fiction by using these qualities alone. This type of writer will put down one intensely emotional or keenly perceptive sentence after the other, and the result will be complete dullness. So going at it too directly, instead of allowing the scene to unfold and give the meaning for us. She says, the fact is that the materials of the fiction writer are the humblest. Fiction is about everything human, and we are made out of dust. And if you scorn yourself getting dusty, then you shouldn't try to write fiction. It's not a grand enough job for you. So I always think that I, yeah. um, sometimes you do have to make yourself more humble and give over the meaning of your text to your reader more in order to really make it work. Now, Whitney, you had a um, you wanted to recommend a particular craft book. Uh, I did actually, um, because I think what is so interesting is I I have a you know like like most of us do probably I have a whole shelf of craft books and oh, yeah. most of them do not have like the chapter on subtext which I think is really interesting. Oh, <laughs> right? Oh, it's kind of weird. Uh, Where the hell is? Yeah. But uh, there is an entire craft book on subte subtext. It's called The Art of Subtext, and it's by Charles Baxter. Uh, and it's oh. one of those, it's that The Art of um, series that Grey Wolf Press puts out. And I and I will say that that it's, um, it's, gr it's great. It's really, it's like this slim little volume, and it really does a great job of kind of breaking down these different ways that that subtext is used in, in different books. So I would really recommend that, as well as that whole series on He's got one on perspective that we love. Um, Mark, any last words about subtext in particular? Yes, I did have my exercise. Um, so, uh, so I would just say that, like, um, so this this exercise is just very simple, um, but it's um, you know about subtext and dialogue. And I guess I think the way to think about subtext and dialogue is is often um, you know people talk about the thing without talking about it for a long time. And usually it builds and builds and builds. And the climax of your conflict will usually be the subtext coming to the surface where it's like, you know, say that like, you know, two sisters are baking a pie and, um, you know, or each baking a pie. And then one sister is like, you know, putting their pie in on the front of the table. So everybody notices it first. And the other sister is like, why did you do that? Why did you put that pie there? You're always it's in the subtext is you're always trying to take the most credit and outshine me. Right. And then you build and build and build. And then finally, in the climax of that scene, that's when you actually hear the subtext like, hey, you're always trying to take credit. And this pie thing is just one on a list and blah, 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 blah. So just build towards the subtext become, coming to the surface. But I would just say the way to to test yourself and to create subtext is like, figure out what the actual on the nose thing is that they want to say. Like, you're always trying to outshine me. You've done that ever since we were five years old, right? 
And then just make sure they don't say that. Just like, <laughs> um, just like, just avoid that thing. But I mean, I think it's actually important and it might be harder than it looks because I think yeah. often uh, an issue with writers um, is that, and I'm, I include myself in this, is that you don't quite know what actually they want. You don't quite know what the issue is. Um, and part of the process of writing and the beauty of writing is figuring out what makes your characters tick. So sometimes it's not till very late in the process that you're like, ah, that's what the issue is with this person, right? But anyway, if you can figure out what the very on the nose thing to say is, make sure you're not saying that right away and find a different way to say it and find a reason why they can't just come out and say it and build your story to the moment where they just can't avoid it anymore. And finally, it comes out. Yeah. Not knowing what your subtext actually is might be a great way to be able to write subtext. Mm. Um, just And just writing the scene and letting your characters act out the scene and letting them become what they need to become and reveal the meaning that way. And you learning the meaning as you're doing that as well. Um, Erica, any last words on subtext? Again, <laughs> just, just, very, just, very, just, just very few. I mean, and just the process of doing what you guys or what uh, Mark and Michelle just described is like, it's getting to know your characters better, which we all try to do. You know, you write the bios of the characters before you write the book, hopefully. And you're like, yeah, I know this person. Then you're writing the, the scene. You're like, I don't know what they would say. And then the process of writing the scene, you're like, oh, well, hopefully you get to know your characters. You're, you're getting to know them in real time almost. Um, yes. To find out what they would really say. And it forces you to do your homework which I avoid, you know, I, I'm like, I just want to write them. Uh, but it forces you to say, okay, who are they really, my characters? You know, what is their baggage? What, what do they bring? So really just, yeah. just that. So. Yeah, and paying attention to the page. All right, everyone, we're going to have to wrap up. These keep getting longer and longer. Everyone, you can find <laughs> what we're doing on our Substack page at 7amnovels.substack.com. I'm not even going to give the rest of the preamble that I normally give or the afteramble or whatever it's called. Um, any final words, Whitney, about just breaking through writing obstacles? I, You know, I'll just say find other writers and hang out with them. You know, I think there's nothing better than like sitting down with another writer and telling them, Hey, you know, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z. And then, and then hearing either what, how they deal with that sort of thing, or just, or just literally sitting there and commiserating. I think it's the best. Yeah. Mark. Um, I would say establish small doable goals every day so that you can like a very very small goal so you can hit that and feel like no matter what happens the rest of the day like i've won i'm already in the black um, as as they say like you can't take away from me that i wrote my 50 words this morning or whatever it is just make it some goal that you definitely can hit and then hit it yes yes somebody somebody was telling me that they tried to take out one word from their manuscript every day <laughs> that was their goal and i'm like yeah that's great and of course they took out much more than that but yeah erica I'm not going to exactly talk about what we're talking about now, but just quick, like quick four things that have really helped me over these decades. Um, one, love of craft. You have to have that because life is hard. And if you don't love this, don't do it because it's just so difficult. But if you love it, great. Two, persistence, persistence, persistence. Three, keep learning. We will never know all there is to know. No one on earth about writing. And during all this time, self-acceptance and self-love, no matter what happens. Love it. 
Perfect. Okay. Thank you all so much. Yes, we could keep talking about this for a long time. Um, these are great writers and great thinkers about writing. So, and wonderful teachers and giving their time to help all of you out. So everyone, I hope you're able to get to your writing desk today or take a good walk and meet a goal in your head about something you want to figure out. I hope you're able to enjoy yourself a little bit in the process. Good luck and good writing. There is nothing here.